0: Well, I'll go ahead and open up with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, uh, thank you again for uh, bringing us together, driving us, or, uh, allowing us to cut, drive here safely, uh, gathering together. Um, we anticipate the uh, insights that your Spirit is going to show us from your Word. Um, we also look forward to the challenges that await us as we um, put to practice the things that we learn. Uh, we study in order to do, in order to teach, just like Ezra did. So, again, we we count it a privilege that we can gather together and um, we seek to uh, become better because of the gathering and because of the things that we're learning as a community so that we can be a better witness for you. Uh, May your name be praised in all that we do. And it's in Yeshua's authority that we say this, Omeen. All right. This is Exegeting Galatians. I am the teacher, Ariel Ben-Lyman. Alright, what I want to do tonight, for our, for uh, I don't have any handout, instead what I'd like you to do is pull out a piece of paper and a pen and your Bible. Just a blank piece of paper. But preferably something that, it's not a scrap piece of paper. Um, preferably it's something that you're going to want to keep with you. Those of you who went through LTS1 with me already have probably one of these. I'm reworking my David Stearns version of the um, of the Book of Galatians. Who all who already has one? I, oh, let me let me rephrase the question. I took David Stern's book of Galatians, reworded it to fit. and I paraphrased it. Um, I'm not saying David Stearns was wrong, or that any other version is wrong and mine's right. I simply paraphrased it to fit the situation. Um, Jumping from the literal Greek and translation into a paraphrase to explain what I felt was happening, and I've reworked it because there were some verses that I, as I'm studying, I'm studying Galatians right along with you guys. I'm just, I just happen to be a few weeks ahead of you guys. Um, but as I was restudying, studying I came across some verses that I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I, I, I really think I need to rework these, so I reworked them. But who has the version that I've given out? Does anyone? Great, then you'll all get fresh versions. Um, I'll probably have that for you either next week or the week to come. But what I want to do tonight real quick is just... Um, someone asked me if we would reconstruct the legend that we had created last semester. The legend of de- deciphering Paul. Uh, um, Paul, is a, um, Paul is a man who writes and when he... Well, when he writes and he seems to be very terse in his writing, he seems to abbreviate for some reason. Even the Greek is so abbreviated in some places... That if we had a literal translation, we would have ellipses between the the spaces. It's like there's. It's like he was writing. Um, like for instance, I'll, I'll give you one 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 example. Um, I think it's in chapter two. It might be chapter two around verse one, two, and three. That whole section right there um, is very very. Um, Abbreviated even in the Greek, so that the, any translation has to fill in missing words. That, that's not according to the literal Greek translation. It's like he's writing and he's talking and he's dictating. Obviously, when we say he's writing, he's really dictating. Um, he probably had someone else write for him. Um, Paul's a horrible writer, by the way. If you read his writings, just in his writing and it's not cleaned up by an editor, his writing is horrible. Which is one of the reasons why I think he didn't write Hebrew because he, Hebrews, because Hebrews is pristine. It's the best Greek in the entire Bible. There's no way Paul could have written it. It's too good for Paul. Um, Read's kind of like Paul's thoughts, but unless Paul wrote it and and an editor went and just cleaned up and changed words. But Paul's so particular in the wording that he uses, I don't think he would have opted for that. So At any rate, um, and you don't catch that unless you see it in the Greek. But um, what we're going to do is create a table because Paul talks, and when he's, when he's kind of terse, and he's kind of like, I, I picture him pacing while he's... He's got his dictator there, or the guy that he's writing writing the thing, and he's just telling him what to write, and you Galatians, and you you influencers, and 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 then he might just like stop and leave the room just to like collect his thoughts because he's so upset, and the and the guy who's you know the guy who's uh, assigned to write is just kind of like <sighs> so he just waits, you know, and then Paul comes back and he picks up wherever Paul starts talking again, so the thoughts doesn't follow all the time. Other times he uses phrases that are just so compacted that. Um, I I get the impression that when he wrote Galatians, he just kind of, he may have put it together in one or two days over the course, because there at least is one part, part, part like here in chapter two, where I think he actually stopped, took a break, and picked up again the next day, and maybe that's why it's just it's, uh, very severely fragmented, um, and then finished maybe the rest of it. But, he seems to have put it together very fast, so he could get it out and up to Galatians, because maybe he felt the situation was going from bad to worse, to ear uh, you're, you know, un, unchangeable or, or the situation was just going to be un, unreversible. But in Romans he actually doesn't write after the situation happens. He writes in preparation of a situation. So it's like he sits down, he takes his time he's just like using paper and sheets and words and phrases. There's like places in Galatians where it's one verse and then he keeps going. He like he'll interject the thought. He's, he's building to a point he'll say something, say something, say something interject the thought and then keep going, and then that one thought is just like, "What's he talking about?" Whereas in Galatian, I'm sorry, Romans, he'll like be moving up, and he's got that thought in mind, but he'll take like a chapter to build up to that thought, and then he'll take a whole chapter to explain that thought, and then he'll take another chapter to kind of trail out of that thought. And he got three chapters with just one thought. That in Galatians, to get one verse. So he's that type of writer. It's really neat to get inside the mind of Paul. I think he's one of the most fascinating. Persons. So we're going to tr- uh, draw a table, uh, a legend of sorts. legend is like like you see on a map. You know, you get on the bottom of the map, and you've got little red lines and dash lines and stars and symbols. And they're so that you can look up the map and figure out what the map is saying, because the legend shows you. Well, with Paul, we have to do that with, at least with some of his terms. So let's just do that. That And I thought about just templating this and putting it on paper and giving it to you guys. But then it it makes more... It makes for more solid understanding if you guys actually write it in your own writing and kind of, we, we put it together here in the class. I think so. You, know, you guys may disagree. Ari will just give it to us. Well, I don't want to do it that way. But what I'll do is I'm going to write the term up here in English. Greek, if necessary, I'll write that too. And then we're going to put what it traditionally means. And then we're going to put what, according to the latest resources that we have... Um, what it really means. So one of the top ones on the list, these are not particularly numbered, they're just bulleted. We have circumcision. Okay. Circumcision here as the um, noun would include circum... Um, I'm sorry, the verb here, circumcision. I'm uh, Just understand I'm also going to include the noun circumcised under the meaning. I don't want to write the two different words because they mean the same thing. But we'll put the word up here. Then we'll put... Uh, in this case, I'll give you the Greek. Uh, circumcision, the verb. Um, Peritemno the, the noun, by the way, is peritome. But this is Peritemno. comes from two Greek words. Peri, which, from which we get the word perimeter. It means around. And temno, from which we get the word terminus, or terminate. To to cut or to stop. So to cut around. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the rest. (laughs) Alright, so, peritemno. The reason I want you to know this Greek word, by the way, you don't have to memorize it, but the reason I want you to know is because Greek, like other languages, typically negates something by adding a few letters up front, or a few letters on the end. We do this in English all the time. We have, in, in fact, in English, we have circumcision, and we have uncircumcision. By adding the suff prefix un to the word circumcision, we, we turn the word's meaning opposite. We, uh, we negate it. Well, Greek does that a lot of times, too. It uses a up front. uses a. And so um, you would think that paratemno, that the opposite of paratemno should be a-peritemno. But it's not. It's actually a whole different Greek word called uh, acrobustia, which tells you that it's a technical term. So I want you to learn this because then our study will become important. All right, so we'll get one word up there. Then we'll get uh, what it means to your average garden variety Bible reader. That's <laughs> what I mean. Because most people don't study. Let's be honest. Most people are not Bereans. I hope that we're Bereans. You know what Bereans are, Right. Okay. I hope that we're, we become Bereans. So we go, we're going to get the garden variety definition, and then we're going to get the Bereans definition, because sometimes they're different. Alright, let's put that word up there. I want to... Uh, uh, well, I guess let's define it now, since we may run out of room. What's the garden variety definition of circumcision? Surgical procedure. Yeah, so we'll put... Surgical. Uh, anything else? Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jew yeah. Surgical's pretty good There's a religious sense that we could say um, the, the ceremony of circumcision Because, for instance If you just take your average males, Your average male in the United States today Is probably circumcised at the hospital But it's not done by a rabbi It's not done in the presence of any prayers It's probably not done on the 8th day So it is surgical, but it's in the absence of any religious connotations, right? So let's put up there, in addition to that, um, the religious ceremony. At least, so that we can catch the context. Because we are talking about circumcision. Now, of course, we're using the term in the Bible. Paul uses the term quite often. From a Brian's point of view, Paul does... He He's not really so much talking about this all the time. This gets caught into it, but there's a couple of other meanings that Paul uses. Does anyone know what they are? There's two of them that aren't on this board yet. You mentioned one of them. What did you say? Identity, and and what did you say the first time? Jew, yeah. Jewish identity. What we mean by Jewish identity is that it's a sociological term that... One group uses to both define themselves and define those who are not part of the group. So the people who are Jewish call themselves the circumcision. And the with with the with the definite article, in Greek. And and those who are outside of the group, i.e. Gentiles, they would say those are the uncircumcision. And sometimes that could be pejorative, you know, negative sounding. Other times it isn't. Paul uses it in his in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the good news for the uncircumcised. I'm reading from David Stern's version. As, just as Kepha had been for the circumcised. What's he saying? He's saying, I was entrusted with the good news to the Gentiles. And Kepha was entrusted, or Peter was entrusted with the good news to the Jews. Yeah. So, Jewish identity. Yeah. Yes. Like Judah and things like that. That The tribal identifications by this point in time were being dropped. When they came out of the Babylonian captivity, of which this is post-exile. This is after the exile of Babylon. They are back in their land. They, they were changed. They were changed people. They had lost a lot of baggage on the good side, which was idolatry. But on the bad side, you could say they were starting to just kind of come together and not do the whole... Um, I'm from this tribe, you're from that tribe, let's fight. On the positive side, that that's, that played for a good amount of unity among the people, because you can get kind of puffed up if you say, well, I'm from the tribe of Levi. Well, we're just from the tribe of Dan. That's like the high. That's like the extremes. Levi is a very high tribe, and Dan, everyone already knows, is a very low tribe, idolatrous, and low in numbers. And, oh, they're from Dan. Don't go talk to them. Um, but um, unfortunately, there were parameters in the Torah that God said certain tribes should not intermarry. Others there wouldn't seem to give them for instance the tribe of Levi, they were not supposed to intermarry. Uh, kings were only supposed to be derived from the from uh, from a certain tribe. Priests were only derived from a certain tribe. A king could could not be from a tribe of Levi. The priests were only from the tribe of Levi. Yet by Yeshua's day they had, had they had kind of mixed and matched and had people sitting on the throne that weren't supposed to be there and their tribes weren't their their priests weren't from the right things. Plus they had multiple high priests. There's only supposed to be one high priest, so it got kind of muddy, but by this point in time, to answer your question, um, they weren't using Jewish as Judah, the way that it's being used today in, like, say, Florida, among the Jewish population there, especially among the Messianics who are enthralled with the whole two-house theology, they're using the word Jew there as as if it's Judah only. That's wrong. That that's that's an incorrect use of Scripture. Paul uses the word Jewish here to mean the in, the inclusive group of. Abraham's offspring, almost synonymous with the way that we use the term um, Israel of sorts. some Somewhat synonymous. Like when he says, is he the God of the Jews only? In Romans three twenty nine, Is he the God of the Jews only? He's not saying, is he the God of the Judahites? Because we know, because of what we call the dualistic pair that he matches that term up to. We'll talk about the dualism of the first century in a moment. But, we've got Jewish identity, and then there's another one that's used in Galatians that if you do not know this one, you will absolutely be tripped up. It's in Galatians five, one through three. He uses the word circumcision. Anyone want to venture, those who were in the my earlier class or those who are bold enough to go out on their own. Look at the verse and then try and figure it out. Galatians five one through three. I can tell you I can assure you right now that the majority of people in the church don't know this don't know this use of the word circumcision. What do you think it is? I Paul tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of no effect if you And he uses the That's close. That's very close. For for someone who's who's just the first time you've been in this class, right? That's not a bad guess. Uh I think you had and then let's go with you. You say conversion, and then what did you say? Yoke. Okay. Actually, David's right. It means but you're not far Michael just so you know it means first and foremost conversion this word circumcision or circumcise. i paul tell you i mean look at the verse chapter 5 verse 1 what the most, i'm reading from david stern's version who has david stern's version by the way well it's okay great version but wait to read, wait to read my version what the Messiah? I'll read David Stern's version, and then I'll tell you what I inserted. What the Messiah has freed you for is freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and don't let yourselves be tied again to a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I shall will tell you that if you undergo Brit Milah, the Messiah will be of no advantage to you at all. Now, Brit Milah is David's, David Stern's Hebrew English for people who are unfamiliar with Hebrew terms, but he's wanting to introduce them to him. Brit Milah simply means, literally, Brit Covenant Milah Circumcision. It means Covenant of Circumcision. Quite literally. If you undergo the circumcision ceremony, the Messiah will be of no advantage to you at all. Again, I warn you, any man who undergoes Brit Milah is obligated to observe the entire Torah. Pause. So, at that point in time, David Stern is using it like kind of like what Michael said in the back there. Um, You said yoke. Actually, David's David's term is is correct that he's talking about conversion, but the conversion is seen by Paul as a bad thing in this case. Because it does turn out to, turn out to be a yoke, so you're both kind of right in that sense. And actually, you're kind of right too. What's going on is that in the first century, there's a misuse of identity. Didn't you just say identity? You said identity a second ago. I'm trying to give you credit, man. Say yes. Say yes. Yeah. All right. I am really nice to my guests. I promise. Um, I'm trying to recruit you to yeah. Um, actually, I'm just nice anyway. Uh, the, in the first century, the Jewish people were trying to get Gentiles to convert. To, to become Jewish, because they, the first century Judaism had a very strong halakhic policy. I'm going to use the word policy, not just opinion. They had a very strong halakhic policy that all Jews and only Jews are covenant members. And the word covenant member that I'm using in air quotes there is church parlance for saved. So if I were to say today to a church person, are you a covenant member? I'm using first century Jewish language to really ask the, the Christian, are you saved? That's what I'm saying. And we could just reverse the same thing, too. The first century Jewish people felt that all of them were saved, but only they were saved. Therefore, if anyone wanted to, else to be saved, they had to also become a Jew. That, thus, Paul says, if you receive circumcision, that was the shorthand for convert to Judaism. So, so we have circumcision, it's Greek, the garden variety definition and then the the definition that Paul's going to work with more often than just these and knowing that these are possibilities will help us to navigate through his letters a little more often i can promise you the church is not aware of this definition they're somewhat aware of this they're they're more stuck on this though this is what they're this is their primary choice of definition when they talk about circumcision this is why they can dismiss it with a, just a wave of the hand oh circumcision done away with yeah, because we're not, under, we're not Jews, and we're not under religious ceremonies of the Jews. We're Christians, for one thing. Which is saying what? We're not Jews, we're Christians? It says a lot in, in, in the things that we talk about today. I'm not trying to pick on any particular person. I'm picking on an ideal that I don't like. Alright, so that's one word. That's, that's a key to help us under, to get through Paul. And as I mentioned in my... Who's in my Monday class? Monday. Hello, you guys are the money. Let's try it again. Who's in my Saturday morning class? Yeah, my second Monday class. <laughs> they don't know it. Don't tell them it's a second Monday. Yeah, um, they're all in the Monday class. You guys, they just don't know it. No. Um, I talked about how that. There are two things that are on Paul's mind constantly throughout his letters. One of them is old man versus new man. Which can somebody tell me what that means, basically? Like, like just decrypt it. What's old man, new man in Paul's ver- vernacular or Paul's? What's that? Bingo, yeah. Old man is an unregenerate person, and a new man is a born-again person. That's big in Paul's letters. Because we all know people who play church, people who play synagogue, and from their point of view, they may not know that they're deceived. That Some people are are internally deceived. They're deceiving themselves. Other people are playing along, and they know they're playing along. But Paul's big on old man new man because the only the new man can serve God the way God deserves to be served, the way God wants to be served, and the way that we really do want to serve God. Old man, I mean, what else can I tell you? Get saved, is what Paul would say too, you know. The old man comes to Paul and says, how can I walk out Torah better? And Paul would say, uh, get saved first. Because you can't walk out the Torah under the power of the flesh. It has to be walked out in the power of the Spirit. End of discussion. Paul would move on. That's one topic that occupies a lot of Paul's space in his letters. But there's another topic that occupies as much space, almost maybe even more, that the church seems unaware of. And do you know what it is? Covenantal gnomism. What's covenantal gnomism? Jewish nationalism. It's this whole thing all over again. It's the idea that all Jews and only Jews can be covenant members. Thus, covenantal gnomism. It's made up of two words. Obviously, you know what covenant means. Gnomism comes from the Greek word namos, which is where we get our word for law in the Greek. It's the word Torah translated into Greek. There we go. All right, covenantal gnomism. The idea is that God makes a covenant with all of Israel, which of course is all Jews, and then in making a covenant with them, he gives them the promises and provisions of the covenant, and that's spelled out in the Torah. Therefore, all Jews and only Jews get the, get the namas, the law, the promises contained. And what's one of the central promises contained in the namas, the law? A place in the world to come. Heaven. What, what do Christians talk about all the time? I mean, what's it all about? We're going to heaven. Are, 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 you, are you? If you were to die today, are you, are you sure you're going to heaven? Why? You know why this preoccupation with heaven? The Jews were preoccupied. Preoccupa- let's try that again. Preoccupied with it as well, but they didn't call it heaven. They called it the age to come. It's that whole dualism thing again. Covenantal nomism becomes a big part of Paul's message because that is the central error in Paul's day. You know, barring this. This is a central error for every man. At every at every age, in every book of the Bible, in every application, there's always going to be old men and new men. That's a central theme of the entire Bible, is God wants to turn the old man into a new man, right? Through the power of the Spirit, through, the of course, the accomplished work of Messiah. But for Paul, it's unique that he talks about covenantal nomism all the time, because that was the big problem in his day. It's not so much the big problem today, and that's possibly... One of the reasons why the church doesn't understand what this term is. And it's possibly why many Messianic Jews don't understand what this is. But I can promise you that without this understanding, you'll misunderstand Paul. Yeah. Did I say that right? Okay. So that's why we're learning it in this class. I don't want us to say, yeah, what was the problem in the first century? It was legalism. It was Paul having to tell them that they didn't have to keep the Torah. That, that argument is so old, We've and, and unfortunately even David Stern... Fosters that argument. That argument is so old it's it's almost insulting now to Paul. So let's move on. Anybody have any questions about that so far? I know it's like a hard, it's a a very big paradigm shift if that's what you were taught, that the problem was legalism. It's not. Alright, the next one we'll talk about is um, law, i.e., Torah. Alright. The Greek word here, namas. N-O-M-O-S. From where we get nom- nomism that I just talked about. Namas. This is the word that Paul uses when he's using talking about law. Now, obviously we could say, contextually, this could either be civil law, could be Roman law, could be God's law. But Paul, being a religious person that he is, he's not a politician, um, and writing to the communities that he does, he's using Torah more often than not. There are a few times when he may mean just the general law of of good and bad, uh, light and darkness, kind of like the moral uh, law that's, that covers the entire earth. You know, thou shalt not kill is kind of a moral law that man is ingrained with. Thou shalt not murder, I should say. Alright, um, the church got this one partially right. When they know, when they read Namos in the Greek, they know that Paul is talking about Torah. They really do. Or, you know, the five books of Moses. But what they aren't aware of is that what Paul also means? Does anyone know? No? No one else? Okay. He means... That's supposed to be an O. Is this my marker? This is my marker. It smells like chocolate. Oral law. What's the oral law? Anyone want to venture a guess? Talmud. What's Talmud? <laughs> Most Christians don't know what Talmud is either. Yeah. Yeah, oral law, is everyone catching that who isn't? Who raise your hands if you're not familiar with what oral law is? Yeah. Oral law is uh let me back up and give you the briefest definition I can but being co- comprehensive at the same time. Basically, God gives his written laws but they're not comprehensive. They don't cover every human experience. So the leaders of the group, the rabbis or proto-rabbis or sages, whoever whatever you want to call them, they come along and they add their opinions and explanations of the written law, and over time, those opinions can become traditions, which can become legal rulings in a community, which which really, now we're talking about group policy, or halakha. So that it went from a simple, maybe, suggestion, to where now, what you end up with is something that's on par with the written, as far as its authority in the community. Now, on the good side, every community makes oral law. It's a, it's a product of human nature, it just happens. Especially if we're talking about God's written law, which isn't comprehensive enough. I mean, God just doesn't write out everything that we could possibly encounter. He does expect for us to fill in the gaps. And as groups, we have things that separate one group from another group by by this, by the moral law. But what will end up happening is if this enhances this, that's a good thing. But if this detracts from or tears down or tries to supersede this, then it's a bad thing. And in Paul's day, the central, I mean, there, were, there the, the legal codes are massive. The Sabbath alone has thousands of restrictions placed on it that aren't even in the Torah. But as far as the oral law, one of the central um, laws of Paul's day that was oral was the separation of Jew and Gentile. We're back to this. Co- I'm, I'm not going to let you guys get away from the covenantal gnomism thing. Before, before you're done with my classes, you'll be able to like eat, sleep, drink covenantal gnomism. That's my, that's my aim, is to get this information out. Because it's so unknown. You'd be surprised. I, I've tried this experiment. If you can get a nickel for every Christian you ask, you'll be rich real quick. But even ask their Messianic friends. Do you guys know what covenantal gnomism is? Jewish exclusivism? Jewish nationalism? Most of them will be like, what? What are you talking about? They won't know. Yeah, I promise you. I don't know why this information is now more, but I aim to change all that. No, I don't need to do it. Heggs already done it. Lancaster's already done it. And yes, I have already done it. Who's got my Galatians commentary? Somebody of printed it off. It's already available on, on the website. So yeah, it is. It is out. And Mark knows about it too. He just doesn't. He's just not on the kick like I am right now. He's talking about hermeneutics. So, all right. The central, one of the central features of the oral law in Paul's day, which, by the way, wasn't Talmudic yet. It wasn't written down. It was still actually truly oral. It was transmitted by, by mouth. Um, one of the central laws that was being upheld and taught in Paul's day was the, the idea of covenantal that Jews only can be covenant members. Therefore, they had a separation of Jew from Gentile. Jews and Gentiles should not come together and be close enough to eat together. That was was some of their laws. They should not be eaten with Gentiles. You can see this, by the way, in the Torah. Turn to Acts chapter 9. I'll just give you one example. I can't resist. I'll give you two. (laughs) I'll show you one coming straight out of Peter's mouth. Peter was what we call today a guter yid. He was not a, he was not a, he was not frum, he was not dati, he was a gutry yid. I'm using Yiddish terms. He was just a good old country boy. He was a, he was a hick. He he knew things just because, he was just raised that way. He just knew things because, he he knew things because he was good-natured. Paul, on the other hand, was learned. Paul could run theological circles around Peter if he wanted to. And he actually did in Galatians chapter 2. But look at Peter's response in Acts chapter 9. I'm sorry. It's Acts chapter ten. What am I saying? In Acts chapter ten, Peter's response to Peter's responding to Cornelius, and down in verse twenty-eight, um, Peter's talking with Cornelius, and Peter says to Cornelius, "Watch this." He said to them, "He is Peter." By the way, he said to them, "Them is Cornelius's bunch." You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have a close associated with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit with them is something that just is... Now, those with David Stern's re- version don't say what, what, what Stern's version says. What does it say in your law? It is... In your version, it is what? Unlawful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now watch this. If it was unlawful, then the Greek should have some derivative of the word namos in there. It's not. It's ophthalmitos. The the Greek word meaning it's taboo. It's just something that shouldn't be done. It's socially unacceptable. But it's certainly not unlawful. So if your version doesn't say the word unlawful, if your version doesn't explain that, then you've got a translator's bias who doesn't know the Torah. That's plain and simple. Because if it's unlawful, show me where in the Torah that God commanded Jews and Gentiles to abstain from coming together. I'll show you quite the opposite. God wanted them to come together. But the Jewish people had engineered a policy that kept them apart from Gentiles. Now I'm not talking about staying away from stone cold pagan influence. That's different. God does command a separation from the pagans and joining their ways and imitating them and things like that. But we're talking about Gentiles who come into Israel and are interested in Israel's God and want to join the Jewish people as fellow worshippers of, of Israel's God. Those people? No. They were not to be held at arm's length. But it had gotten all the way to the point where even Peter is... He's, he's not really owning this theology. He's just doing what most believers do. They're regurgitating what their leaders tell them without really even knowing what they're saying. He just says, well, you know that... You know, you're well aware that for a man who's a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or come to visit with him is something that just isn't done. Stern, aware of the word namas and athamitas, um, makes that distinction and doesn't say unlawful. Whereas most Christian translations aren't aware of the. Uh, oops. There we go. They aren't aware of the uh, the the subtle differences between one simple Greek word. My point is simply this: Paul, uh, Peter is is giving us an example of an oral tradition here, and then in Acts chapter 15, five chapters later, it's Peter. It's not Peter talking this time. No, I think it is Peter again. He says in verse, yeah, good old Peter. Let's pick on Peter. <laughs> in in chapter 15, verse 10. This is the Jerusalem Council, the famous bet den, where they decide the four, no more, right? Um, Peter says to the group, he says in verse 10, "So why are you putting God to the test now by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, or the, the Talmudim, which neither our fathers nor we have had the strength to bear. What yoke is he talking about? Is he talking about the Torah? Is that what he that we say that no one can bear? If he is talking about the Torah, where would he get such a notion? Does the Torah describe itself that way? That it's a yoke that no one can keep? Have you, raise your hands, have you ever heard someone say, no one can keep the entire law? Raise your hands, Honest, be honest with me if you've heard someone say that. Yeah, no one can keep the entire law. That's why God gave it to us, so that we would try and keep it, fail miserably, and give up, throw our hands up in exasperation, and cry out for the love and mercy of Yeshua. No, no, no. That's not why God gave us His law. That that doesn't work that way. By the way, the law can be done. Deuteronomy chapter thirty, Parashat Nitzavim, Moshe explicitly says, it, "The word is very near in your hearts and in your mouths, so that you can do it. You can do it. It's doable." So this yoke that no one, that neither we nor our fathers had the strength to bear, cannot be the written Torah. If it's not the written Torah, what is it? It's the oral Torah. It's the massive legal code that the leaders were imposing on the people, and it was so huge that that even the leaders knew that, that no one can do it. But it was kind of that inside information that we're not going to tell the people that they can't keep this, but we're going to make them try, and we're going to get every drop of blood and sweat out of them, and money as well. So, it, I mean, it, really, really, it was really corrupt. It's that bad. So, law, Torah, namas, Torah, oral law, or oral Torah. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5... The verses we just read. I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of none effect. That's one issue. But then he mentions another. He says the same opening part, but it gives a different ending. What does he say the second time? Because he says, I repeat, just in case they like didn't catch it the first time. I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of none effect. And then he repeats. He says, again, I say. Then what does he say the second time? If you become circumcised, you're obligated to keep the entire Torah. Wait a minute. Let's let's stop and let's let's think about this for a split second. Could Paul really be suggesting to the proselyte wannabes, Jewish wannabes, that if they become snip snip surgically or religiously or just be—I mean, we can use any any combination we want. We're going to opt for this one, by the way. Is Paul really saying that if you Gentiles become Jews, just becoming circumcised? Obligates you to keep the entire Torah, all 613 commandments, as the rabbis have enumerated them. Is that what Paul's saying to them? You're getting there. Yeah, he's saying something different. I can promise you, every major, non-Jewish... I'm trying to avoid using the word Christian overly, because again, I don't want to be labeled as pejorative. But every... well, I mean, goodness, it's just pragmatism. There aren't any Jewish commentaries on Galatians... From a non-Messianic point of view, do you guys know of any? There are uh, actually. I apologize. There are a few. E.P. Sanders wrote one, but um, but other than that, there aren't. Christians are the ones writing commentaries on the New Testament, right? Yeah. So, but every major um Christian, I said it. I said the c-word. Every major Christian um commentary on the Book of Galatians takes chapter five, verse three of Galatians to be Paul saying, "I tell you that if you become circumcised, you have to keep the entire law." And and now I'm going to fill in for them. And because we know I'm Paul talking, and because we know that no one can keep the entire law, don't get circumcised. That's what we have Paul saying. That's not what Paul's saying. That doesn't make any sense. Paul's saying, first of all, that I tell you if you, become, if you convert and become a Gentile, um, become a Jew, that you're obligated to keep the entire law. So there are two issues. We have to clean up the word conversion, and we have to clean up the word law before we'll understand the verse. Both, both terms need to be explained, and that's what we're doing right up here. I, Paul, tell you that if you become a Jew, you're, entitled, you're obligated to keep the entire law. But now that we know what, what circumcision means, let's explain oral law. What Paul's really saying is, I, Paul, tell you that if you become a Jew under the, um, uh, the halachic guidance of the influencers, you are obligated to keep the entire law written, which, which isn't a bad thing, by the way, but more importantly, the oral Torah, which has a problem with Jews and Gentiles coming together. The oral tradition has a problem. It it There's the deficiency. Oral tradition has a problem with Jews and Gentiles. The written Torah does not have a problem with Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, Paul is in favor of written Torah and opposed to any portion of oral Torah that would separate Jews and Gentiles in Messiah, outside of Messiah, it doesn't matter. So is Paul going to be in favor of his, his flock adopting a policy that splits up believing Jews from believing Gentiles? How about family from family? I mean, is Paul going to be in favor of that kind of policy? Not on your life! Why? Because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles to bring them in to the Commonwealth of Israel. Of course, he's opposed to this. You want to get Paul upset? Push push those buttons. Tell you want to get Paul upset? Tell Paul that Gentiles are second class citizens. That that'll just grind Paul's socks. That he's very passionate about this. In fact. Maybe that's why it took him 14 years or possibly to, to kind of work this theology out. But once he owned it, he owned it. I mean, he did a good job of it. So, And we need to do a good job today of reading the New Testament and interpreting Paul correctly and so that we don't fall for the same nonsense that's creeping up in the Messianic Judaism today. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, why is he going to the synagogue, though? Uh, you know the answer. I'm just going to help you figure it out. Because the Greeks are in the synagogue learning from the Jews as well. He is, he is there talking to Jews and Gentiles. But when we, when we use the phrase, the apostle to the Gentiles, it's not so much the way that we understand the term, I go to Gentiles and you go to Jews. In fact, the, the way that he described it in the second chapter, it doesn't mean you go to the Gentiles and I go to the Jews. So much as it means that my theology, just like I'm focusing on Galatians right now, my theology is going to focus on the equality of Gentiles with Jews. And deal with Gentile to Jewish sociological issues, as as seen through the eyes of the Gentile, not necessarily through the eyes of the Jew. From the eyes through the eyes of the Jewish community of the first century, they didn't have any problem per se. In fact, not only did they not have a problem, they had a solution for those who had problems. That's what Paul describes. That's why Paul describes the. ...perfect Jew or the model Jew in Galatians, uh, Romans chapter 2. You call yourself a Jew and you're a guide to the blind... ...and you, you rest on Torah and you boast and make your boast in God... ...and blah, 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 blah. Telling other people not to steal. Do you steal? Okay, that's what Paul means. The Jewish people were just like, we're, we're it. We're all that in a bag of chips in the first century. Um, kosher chips, by the way. So, because they had all the answers... ...Paul is now going to go into the Gentile camp... And see the social problem from their view working towards the, the Jewish people. Which was still the kind of the solution. Peter was told to stay in the, gen, in the Jewish camp and work with the social issues as Jewish Gentile people came towards them. The locust was still the Jews. You know, Yeshua was questioned by the woman by the, at the well, the Samaritan. She, you know, she's like, uh, and we all know who the Samaritans are, I don't have to give you guys a lesson about that. But he's like, you know, salvation is of the Jews. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the, the locust was the Jewish people. They are the gra- they are the olive tree in Romans chapter 11 that Paul is describing. So, um, any policy that 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 denigrates gentiles is going to burn Paul up, because he's the apostle sent to, to... It's kind of like a DA sent to hear your case, right? You know, the court appoints a DA, you know, the person's there and they don't have any representation, so the court says, alright, we're going to appoint a district attorney to handle your case. That's kind of what's going on. Paul is the appointed DA for the Gentiles. That doesn't mean he doesn't go to Jews. It just means that when he does go to Jews, he's going to talk about them. In fact, he's going to identify himself with the Gentiles so much that he'll he'll even at some point in time get accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple, even though he didn't. Past the little short wall called the Soreg that they'd put up, erected around the temple. Um, you know, the temple mount looks like this. That's east. That's, well, that's south. That's west. That's north. This is the temple mount. The Holy of Holies was there. Uh, this is the holy place, and then this is the rest of the courtyard or whatever. Um... So the holy of holies, and then the holy place. You know what I'm talking about. Um, it faced east. The the cotel is down here. At any rate, um, uh, when God gave the description of the temple in uh, Exodus chapter 25, parashat um, uh, truma, he, he the, uh, the, the 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 tabernacle account tells to build the holy of holies, the holy place, the the you know the the, uh, the this part, the separate uh, part and the courtyard around it and build all this stuff and then when Solomon picked up on that same um, direction and expanded it into the temple, Solomon's temple he, he blew this thing up as well but when Herod's temple was put together, which is the one that's in existence in Shua's day, there's something in the temple uh, uh, grounds that's not in the Torah, does anyone know what it is? no? It's this little dividing wall that separates the court of the Gentiles from the court of the non-Gentiles. It's a little f- three-foot, four-foot wall. It's been on Earth. It's archaeological provable. Uh, it's called a soreg, by the way, S-O-R-E-G, and it's the little dividing wall. And Paul even uses that term. It's the little dividing wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from those who were Jews. So if I was a Jew back in Paul's day, I could walk in, walk up, walk walk into the little gate, walk past all these Gentiles keep walking and get to the Jewish gate and keep going and bring my sacrifice right up to the priest here. Of course, I couldn't go into the holy of, the holy place or the holy of holy place. Nobody could except the priests. But the Gentiles, they could come, they get in here, and then that's it. They had to do their sacrifices proxy right here, the gate. They couldn't go up to this point. The priests were stopping them here. Where's that in Torah again? Where did God say, make sure to build this little wall so the Gentiles can't come in? I thought God said through prophet that my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. Yeah. This oral tradition that separated Jew from Gentiles? Nonsense! That's why it upsets Paul so much. And it should upset us as much. So, that's, that's the world view that Paul's working with. That, that'll kind of help us to get inside the mind of why he's so upset about this whole idea that Jew, all Jews and only Jews. By the way, what's wrong with that? Spiritually. All Jews and only Jews. Remember my other side here? Old men, new men. All Jews and only Jews automatically saved because I'm Jewish? In other words, there aren't any old men in that view. They're all new men. Yeah, we're all saved. How are you saved? I was born saved. By the way, we don't call that works. We call that grace. <laughs> See how tricky that is? Yeah. That's why we need to get away from this notion that the first century Jewish people were trying to earn their way in. They weren't trying to earn their way in. They thought they were in by being Jewish. There's nothing to earn. You were born with it. That's a big difference from trying to earn it, right? Wouldn't you agree? I, like a whole world away. Okay, and then one last one. Circumcision law. I got like two minutes, three minutes. Um, under law. All right, underlaw is a phrase actually, I do have another one. have to go really quick on these. I apologize. Under law, the Greek equivalent is upo namas. Upo Upo namas. Uh-huh. Works of law is erga namas. Actually, I apologize. I think this is upo namon. It's a derivative. All right. Uh, upo under. Notice it's not under the law. It's under law. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I wrote "air I saw the in, I carried it over. "Aragon," thank you. See, you're 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 catching it. Ergon. "namas," "la la Namon. I think this is namon, not "namas." It's just a derivative of it's a it's a. We're just parsing the the verbs. Um. Uh, conjugating the nouns I'm sorry upo nomon I believe it is don't quote me on it it might be, it might be namas but this is definitely aragon namas works of law under law respectively standard definition again real quick under law what's your, what's your garden variety definition of under law we're just building the table that we built when, in the first class um, what's your garden variety definition of under the law not even bondage it's, it's even lighter than that nope not even that we're no longer under law, we're under grace. How does the church define the under law there? Nope, not even works. Keeping the law, just keeping the Torah. It's as, it's as innocent as keeping the Torah. Just doing it, you know. We're no longer under law, we're under grace. I don't have to keep the Sabbath. They're not, smack, they're not talking about legalism per se. They're just talking about doing it, you know. Keep Torah. That's the garden variety ver- uh, definition. What's the Bereans definition? Do you know what under law really means? I'll give you a hint, it is bad. Under law is shorthand for under the penalty pronounced in the law for sinners, or under the condemnation of the law, or under the curse pronounced for unrepented sinners. Uh, the, under the penalty that the law spells out for those who have been. Um, deemed a sinner by God's bar of justice under the penalty of the law. It's like, it's shorthand, under the penalty of the law, the, the penalty reserved for sinners, that type of stuff. Under condemnation, if I wanted to use two words. So we'll use that this time. Under. The difference for us, Romans 8, one. there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are who, who are what? In Messiah, we are out from under the condemnation pronounced in the law for sinners. It's a status change. it's a legal change. We're no longer under that we're, we, we're different people now, so we're no longer under the law. That's what Paul means when he says that. Works of law is just the um is this again uh, what, what do what's the garden variety definition of works of law that Christians say? It's the same thing. keep Torah. It's identical. Works of law, the the commandments. You know the works, the works of law, the things that the law tells you to do. Aren't those the works? <laughs> Keep Torah. But what's the Bereans definition? The conversion policy. That's works of law. Now that's a little more difficult to understand unless we we're going to work the context. Don't worry. But that's this is the this is this is your your table decrypting Paul. I'll leave that up there. Let me close because I know Mark's going to come busting in here in any minute. What's that? that there was one in Acts ten, like verse twenty-seven. Oh, oh, that's Romans eight one. Yeah, Romans eight one. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of sin. What for what? Christ's feeders from is from the law of sin, or for what the law of could not do, or something like that. Um, yeah, so so it's funny that the church takes under law and works of law as synonymous. You know, we're no longer under the law; we're under grace. And when Paul says, "Are you saved by the works of law? or Are you saved by faith in Christ?" They take works of law as doing the law, doing the law, doing the law. They take them as synonymous, even though they're two different Greek words, and for Paul, they mean two different things. They're 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 both bad. The conversion policy is bad because it's being misused, and being under condemnation is bad. But they're they're two different degrees of bad. This is bad because you're still old man. I mean, if you're a new man, then you're out from under that. But you could still be tripped up by this. In fact, the proof is that Paul says, do not be tangled again to a yoke of slavery. Well, help me out. I thought believers can't be slaves. You must be talking about another kind of slavery. That kind of slavery. (laughs) So, all right, I'm out of time. What would you think, Mr. Visitor? Great, okay. Comprehensive manner? I did. It's on the web. It's called, What's Bothering Paul? All right. Yeah, it's on the website. I'll close. Abai, thank you for uh, allowing us to study your words. Help us to um, gain an appreciation for the um, situation faced in the first century because we seem to be stepping into that same situation today, especially with the Messianic Jewish groups, um, of which I'll explain to my students next week. So thank you for preparing us in advance uh, to be able to understand your truths and be better armed to... Um, both explain and articulate uh, what really should be taking place we don't have all the answers and so we look to you the one who does thank you father for all these things in yeshua's name i mean yes in case you ca- caught it in my prayer next week we'll talk about why some of you are probably scratching your head going wait ariel that's great this this is great but why do i care today i'll tell you why next week so mr visitor come back That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or New Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God,